0: Today is April 29, 2011, and my guest is John Popola of the production company Emergent Order and the co-creator along with me of the Keynes-Hayek rap videos. John, welcome to Econ Talk.
1: It's very exciting to be here with you, Russ.
0: Uh, fun for me too. It's a little bit of a weird setup because uh, I'm going to be interviewing both of us. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's not, I'm not really interview. anyway, that's what we're doing here. We, the second Keynes-Hayek rap video called The Fight of the Century – uh, Keynes versus Hayek round two uh, debuted uh, this past week, and I thought we'd talk a little bit about our – to start about our collaboration and then some of the economics issues involved in the video and the lyrics and then finally try to give the listeners a little bit of the behind-the-scenes of how uh, hundreds and hundreds of hours of your time and mine and then dozens of hours of filming time got turned into nine minutes of uh, – ten minutes of, of video. It's Remarkable story that it's been fun for me to see uh, behind the curtain of the process, and I thought some of our listeners would enjoy that as well. At the end of the podcast, uh, we hope you will hear the, um, the song itself, and you can find the video at econstories.tv where John and I archive uh, the rap videos we produced as well as interviews we've done with other other folks that are related to the material and the videos, Robert Skidelsky, Larry White, and we hope down the road others.
1: So, John, and let me just say, Russ, that in a lot of ways, being on Econ Talk today uh, brings me full circle.
0: Yeah, tell us, tell us why.
1: So, I guess this is as good a place as any to kick off. um, My interest in economics began, um, you know, a few years ago, really uh, in 2007, and I had read. Began reading a lot. I had a lot of time with my bus commute, and uh, I read a book called The Black Swan, and was just blown away by the book.
0: Nassim Taleb was a guest on and, the show talking about about the book.
1: Yeah, and so you know, I was getting into these podcasts because I get motion sickness when I actually read books on the bus, so I listened to the books. So I listened to that book, and um, I went on. The, I, I Googled Nassim looking for interviews with him to see what other content. And on his website, "Fooled by Randomness," was an interview, and I was very excited. So I downloaded that. It turned out to be his interview with you on this podcast, Econ Talk. I listened to it, I subscribed to it, and became a fan. And that's really, I mean, it became my primary source of economics education with Econ Talk on my bus.
0: Kind of frightening, but it turned <laughs> out it seems to turn out fairly well. And and I think it was. Uh... Of course, you read a few other things you got interested in, and and, uh, one of the things I want to mention from the top is that it's one of the bizarre things about – I don't do a lot of collaborating, um, and one of the bizarre things about this project has been the the pleasure of collaborating with somebody, which, of course, has transaction costs. Uh, We spend a lot of time on the phone and and emailing each other and probably another amount of time looking for each other. But um, one of the pleasures of this collaboration has been – uh, the equality of it, and I think it's a little bit unfortunate. A lot of people, I think, watch the video and go, "Well, Russ Roberts is the economist, and John is the filmmaker." But it's not just econ talk. John's self-educated in economics and in, in a really wide range of stuff and reading, and contributes at least fifty percent of the lyrics and the ideas. And similarly, I try to contribute a reasonable amount of the visual ideas, not the actual filming. That's that's John, but. Certainly, in the story narrative and how do we tell a visual story, we work totally together, and um, it's not always. In my experience, a lot of times one plus one equals one point four, sometimes point seven, but one plus one is equal, is equal to three in this case. We've really, obviously, had a a great uh, deal of fun doing a bunch of stuff that we either of us would struggle to do on our own.
1: I mean, one of the one of the big surprises for me with this whole process with both Fear the Boom and Bust. With, uh, uh, Ignore that noise here. in the background, John. That's
0: very appropriate that yeah. the listeners can hear some noises in the background because that's how it often is in the, these conversations. <laughs> We've got the rest of our life going on. For most of the time, This is in, in the past, this has been a, a side project for both of us, and we had to squeeze it in in all kinds of places and settings. So carry on.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, as a, as a total side note, it was, it was a pleasure to discover that Russ was actually as big a Mac fanatic as I am and that we both get to both enjoy and scorn our uh, our communications devices. <laughs> yeah, that's true.
0: Yeah, that's true. So
1: here we are, video chatting over the video, and yet plain old telephone calls are surprisingly difficult technological events. Yeah. So anyway, um,
0: we we got talking a long time back. I think uh, spring of two thousand and nine. Uh, John approached me and said. I'd like to do something with you, maybe some kind of video, and I thought, eh, that's a nice idea, but you know, it's a lot of time. Video is very time intensive, and I don't know this guy. Some crazy guy calls me from New Jersey about – he likes econ talk, and and I just thought you know, this is going to be a time sink, which it was by the way, but not a wasted time sink. So John calls me and he says, um, I'd like to do a video, and I said, look, um, I don't have a lot of time. If you can start the process going – then uh, I'll continue to correspond with you and email you, et cetera. And, and I've done this with other potential collaborators and they always fall by the wayside, but John did not. John relentlessly pursued the idea that we would do something together and basically forced me to to get back to him often And because his stuff was so good. So we eventually – as we've told the story I think before, we, we eventually uh, decided we would uh, do a, a sitcom where Keynes would come back to life. At this point, remember we're in the middle of the stimulus package, and its and its uh, so-called impact, unknown impact, claimed impact, and we thought, well, since Keynes has somehow recovered from the ignominy of the seventies, eighties, and nineties when he was totally dismissed by the econ profession, let's do a, a, a sitcom where Keynes comes back to life as he always seems to, and is but uh, he's a struggling assistant professor in New York City, and um, we were going to have his love life, his financial problems. We had a lot of fun talking about that. And then one day one of us said, you know, this is kind of nice. It's interesting. I love imagining all this, but let's actually do something. And since we're not going to produce a 30-minute pilot because we don't have any money, why don't we just do the theme song to that sitcom?
2: That's right.
0: And uh, we decided to pick Stayin' Alive, Saturday Night <laughs> Fever, uh, and show Keynes's Wingtips coming down Broadway like John Travolta's Shoes and Saturday Night Fever. But that didn't work out. Why didn't it?
1: Well, so the first thing we did is, uh, you know, and I think you came back at me with a, with a full lyric, which was Wait, hilarious. Sorry.
0: We had some great lyrics for that.
1: And, um, and we played around with it, and I did some revisions on it, and, and then I tested it. So, you know, one of the pro- parts of the process is we do what's called a scratch track, which is, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to spend the money and the time to record professional voice talent until you've really secured and, and essentially locked down the the timing and the wording and everything. And so, I, uh, in order to test this thing out, downloaded a karaoke version of "Staying Alive," and then recorded myself hor- horribly. Ah, come on. I-
0: Actually, John's, John. I thought, hey, this is pretty good right now. Why don't we just stop? We're done. <laughs> this is great. Let's get, let's start filming. But uh, we didn't decide not to go that route. No, no. We, uh, we were yeah, worried we... about, we were worried about the Bee Gees. To be blunt, uh, some people told us, well, it's parody. You can do whatever you want with it. Other people said, well, it's, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And we thought maybe we should buy the rights from them. What if they don't like it? And then we worried if we go to all this trouble, and and then we don't lose the rights to it and have to take it down off the internet. Um, that's going to be
1: pretty depressing.
0: So we just said, "Oh, that's no problem." Well,
1: that's write a right. wrong song. I, so, yeah. So we uh, remember we went back to the drawing board, as, as as happens a lot in this type of process, the creative process. I mean, there's a lot of destruction within the creative process. Never mind the creative destruction that happens after things are finished. Um, but there, we have a, we have a, we have a saying for that in in the business which is you know you sort of you knife your babies it's really awful but
0: well yeah in writing it's called you have to kill i think i, I first heard it from Truman Capote i don't know if if it's really his line but it's you have to kill your darlings the things yeah, you fall no, in love with
1: the same but so it's gotten it's gotten more gruesome as our film courses, yeah. I guess <laughs> but the, but the, you know you, you create
0: something you you fall in love with it then you got to you got to cut you got to cut it sometimes
1: so yeah so i think i think um, thankfully we we felt that you know there, there was the rights issues, but I think even deeper than just the rights issues was that was that piece was really a slam on Cain. That's it was correct. Really just a mockery. That's correct of Cain's and him walking down and you know treating him like a spendthrift and and all all that and it, you know is very it did, it did have a very ad hominem approach to it. Yeah,
0: at the end, I think we decided at the end of the of the song, he'd be at his ATM machine, it'd be empty, it'd be, they'd be rejecting his card because he borrows too much. It was amusing. We got a kick out of it. It wasn't very nice. So we decided that wasn't how we wanted to treat uh, an intellectual giant who we happened to disagree with, but who was a pretty influential and intelligent person. So we decided to take a different approach.
1: Yeah, and I think, and I mean, for me, the reason that I re- reached out to you in the first place I know we've talked about this along the way. Is um, you know, you bring people onto this show from a lot of different points of view, and you know you don't hide your own, but you spend a lot of time thinking about it. I mean, I think I've listened to like to multiple podcasts about the nature of your own bias, <laughs> which is interesting, and um, and I just I just think that that's that's the right way to do it. We should we, we, we don't we have a point of view. And we don't hide from that, we're proud of it, but there's no reason why we can't both have a point of view and treat the alternative point of view with respect. And that's, I think, I'm probably most proud of the, not just the outcome of of that effort, but the amount of time we've spent doing that and putting verses in and taking them out and considering their impact and their, their accuracy and... Is this the strongest case that he would make, or that, or that, you know? And also, I think an important thing to note about both of these pieces is that they are not historical works. This is Keynes, as we see him, and sort of his modern opponents. Yeah. These are sort of amalgamated characters. They're 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 not. This is what Keynes himself would have said, or this is what Hayek himself would have said.
0: They're both dead. It just you know uh, this idea that that they wouldn't have said that we don't know what they would have said. We're we're, we're speculating, and of course, as you say, we're drawing on their modern proponents, uh, and we're trying to be fair to the to the overall vision as as best we can. I, I want to just I I'm going to digress on this for a second because it's so interesting to me. Um, a, a lot, of, most people, of course, um, enjoy the the. Entertainment aspect of these videos, but there is a serious intellectual message in both of them, and we are very proud and excited that people use these in the classroom, in high schools and and universities, as conversation starters, stimulators of of intellectual ideas, and and discussion starters. And uh, there is always a question of of the way it often gets discussed is, are we biased? And the answer is, I don't think we're biased. Uh, but we have an ideology. We have a philosophy. We are pro-Hayek. Hayek looks good in both videos, but so does Keynes. We think he's the winner intellectually, but we try to present Keynes fairly. That's the, that's the key point, not whether we're biased for or against Hayek's or Keynes' views, but whether we represent whether we represent them fairly. Now, of course, to some extent, we caricature Keynes, but we caricature Hayek also. We only got seven and a half minutes or so in, of music in this, and we're going to have to simplify a little bit. We're going to have to imagine what they might have said about modern things. And to me, the biggest stamp of approval that we ever received, and I don't think we can, we can do better than this, is that Robert Skidelsky, who's Keynes's probably most – one of his most impassioned modern advocates and certainly the most respected biographer of Keynes, uh, gave our lyrics of, of Keynes's the stamp of approval as being fair. Uh, and I think that's all you can ask for I think on both sides and uh we're both we're both very proud of that obviously
1: yeah these i mean these ideas of fair and bias are themselves so so uh, subject to interpretation i mean when i think about what does it mean to be fair uh and given this is this is this isn't a fully formed thought but when i think about it i say okay well i'm not going to knowingly withhold information or knowingly distort what 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 it is that's going on, and what you know I see is Keynes' point of view, and what we de- de- decide on to do. But we're going to put we're going to really put an effort in to have his argument be the best argument he can make. And I know, I just saw, you know I just saw a review of the new one by by a, by a reporter, which said just that. He said, you know, the, it's it's definitely pro Hayek, but but you know Keynes makes his best arguments.
0: Yeah, that's how you can. I mean that—that that to me is the is deep flattery. So I, let's put let's move on. But I just want to—I think that's important that we both care strongly about that. And of course, it's easy to say that. You know, maybe we're we're fooling ourselves when, when one of my George Mason colleagues says we're fair to Keynes. I have to take that with a grain of salt because he like <laughs> he's not a big fan of Keynes, and and neither am I. But that's that's for the marketplace to decide. And uh, if people use it in the classroom, if non – if Keynesians use it in their classrooms as discussion starters. Uh, that's 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 really what we're what we're all about. Um, now, I want to talk a little bit about some of the economics in the song that that's a little um, uh, that's important to both of us, and some of it's a little subtle. The first thing I want to talk about is that if you go to the the original the the lyrics or the uh, video itself for the current video, which is "Fight of the Century," uh, we spend a reasonable amount of time talking about war and particularly World War II as to whether it ended the depression or not. Uh, we put John why do we why do we spend so many verses of on Keynes talking about it and Hayek uh, trying to uh, counter those views those arguments
1: Well, I think the first thing i'd want to say is that Keynes was not a warmonger and we are not i don 't think we try to present him that way, and I know i don't talk about him that way and nor, nor do you I mean he wrote the economic consequences of the peace and um you know, I, he, just, I, that he didn't advocate war. However, he did on multiple occasions say that the spending that war induces could be good for the economy when there's, uh, quote, slack capacity and, uh, un, you know, when we were below uh, full employment, whatever that really means. Um, and uh, I, I know in 1940, in I think the New Republic, He wrote, and I don't have the quote in front of me exactly, but something, I believe, it was something in the effect of, it appears that within uh, capitalist democracies only wars can cause governments to spend enough to prove my case. And again, he wasn't saying we should go to war to fix the economy. He was just saying that it might do it. It might fix it. And, And then we see it's not just war, though, because natural disasters can do the same. I mean, Larry Summers Made a quip about how the tsunami in Japan could lead to quote economic strength, and you know I think the charitable reading of that is well he's trying to put a silver lining on a tragedy, and that could be you know uh, but I, I he's not just some guy he's a pretty influential figure and I think I think the best way to put to, to put why I think it's important to attack this subject and then we can get into what what our argument is 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 to talk about you know the way Keynes saw the role of economists and intellectuals and that you know practical men don't take verbatim the nuances of these intellectuals but they they take the echoes of them and they have their own confirmation biases and so one sort of studious very narrowly defined way in which a war could Increase the velocity of money suddenly becomes, well, you know, war does improve the economy. And I think that's, the, that's, that's what happens. That's what happens in the culture when these ideas sort of get migrated and translated through the political system, through, you know, through time. And so now we, we live in a world where most Americans think that World War II brought an end to the Great Depression.
0: And I want to come to the actual details of that in a, in a second, but I do think your point. … is extremely important about the cultural ramifications of an offhand remark that isn't taken very subtly. Um, one of the sub-themes in both of our of our videos is the, um, the way that politicians use economic arguments to their own – to serve their own self-interest and how special interests can thrive from those um, – uh, that kind of rhetoric. … And that's a very Hayekian theme obviously. It's, it, it runs all through the road to serfdom that, that when you centralize power, you don't get the ideal solution that someone might be advocating but rather – something rather different. And um, both of us are very disturbed at how uh, adding to the benefits of war uh, economic improvement is to me a, a very dangerous and pernicious idea. It also we think happens to be wrong but
1: right, – I mean. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, one. So I want to make that
0: clear. That. We're not, we're not against it because well, it's kind of dangerous. We're, we're against it because it's wrong. But then when you combine that with the fact that it is dangerous, that it does give politicians an extra excuse for for wartime spending, I think is is a really bad set of incentives.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's uh, again, it's easy for those of us on our side to pull Paul Krugman quotes out for just about anything we want to prove that we don't like. So I hate to do that in a sense and be play with a cliche, but. That's now there was two quotes that stand out when I think about this issue. One was on September 14th in 2001 when he said that this uh this event like the original day of infamy might do some economic good. Yep. Again, you know, this event being the terrorist attacks on September 11th and that well the rebuilding would spur the economy. Um and then again in 2008 it, responding to a very Keynesian statement made by george w. Bush about the the positive effects of the Iraq war on the economy the alleged positive effects, uh, Paul Krugman found himself quite quite um out of character in agreement with the president that yes, he thought that the uh, the war was actually i think he put it number two on the list of things that contributed to the the economy's growth throughout that period, and I think that's um you know, those are those are very powerful, and in my personal opinion, very frightening ideas to echo repeatedly.
0: Yeah, and of course, the the, the response to that goes back, probably goes farther back than this, but the middle of the nineteenth century, Bastiat, the great French economist, uh, called the broken window fallacy. We've linked to it many times. We'll link to it again today for today's podcast. But the uh, the idea that um, breaking windows, that destruction can somehow create prosperity is, uh, we think, false. And when 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 the other people who agree with it promote it, um, I don't really – simply sometimes I just find it bewildering. But let, let's go back to World War II uh, specifically. Basically, we had a situation in the, – the Great Depression has its worst moments in 1933. Unemployment hits 25%. The economy starts to recover in the sense that GDP starts to grow. Uh, By the end of the 30s, though, a second recession occurs in 1938, and uh, unemployment rises again. And basically the economy doesn't get healthy again until about 1946. So inevitably there's the temptation to say, well, between 1938 and 1946, things got healthy. What happened between then? Well, there was an immense amount of government spending on defense, and so – Therefore, war is good for the economy, and the intellectual underpinnings of that would be a Keynesian argument about the multiplier effect, that this government spending pumped into the economy, massive increases in deficit-financed government spending, put money into the economy. That money got spent, that money got spent, that money got spent. Before you know it, we're back to a prosperous time. Um, That, by the way, is is the revised myth of the Great Depression. The original myth was the New Deal. End of the Great Depression, FDR, saved the country. This myth was promulgated by pro-FDR historians. Economists began to reject it at some point. I don't know when it was literally rejected. Obviously there's no particular date, but it, people started to eventually admit that, well, the New Deal was mostly window dressing. It might have been good for the mood of the country, uh, The especially the Keynesians went around saying, well, we never really tried Keynesianism in the 30s. He, uh, Roosevelt was too afraid of deficits. When it was only the war, coming back to your earlier point about the New Republic article of Keynes. It was only the war that forced Roosevelt's hand. You know, We had to spend a lot, and as a result, we finally got the Keynesian cure. So that's the the story. Uh, What do we think is wrong with that?
1: Well, um, again, everyone should excuse when I screw up technical terms. I am still an amateur, but it seems like one thing that's weird about it is it confuses sort of a flow of spending and the stock of wealth – so I you know, my understanding of what GDP is, is that it's a essentially an accounting of the transactions that took place over some set periods, I like guess a year, for example. Yeah. Um, it does not uh it, it doesn't really represent the assets, the value of the assets over time or how you know whether they're good or whether they're not good, whether they're whether we've whether those transactions were building bridges to nowhere, we're building iPads and uh New um, cancer cures. There's no means within national income accounting to distinguish between things that are good and things that are wasteful. So yes, you know.
0: Well, that's one problem, right? And a a more technical problem is that the usual answer of the economist says, well, that's true. But if people buy it, it must be valuable. The problem with wartime spending is that it's bought not by the individual decisions of consumers but by the government in the pursuit of a potentially very valuable enterprise. could be defending yourself or it could be horrible. It could be attacking somebody who doesn't deserve it but uh, – doesn't merit it. But but the – we're going. by the way, I just want to say all of what we say has nothing to do about whether a particular war is just or unjust. That's right. uh, just as the people who talked about 9-11 as being good for the economy, they weren't justifying 9-11. They, they we're not saying that. They were trying to – and they always preface correctly their remarks by saying "You know, this is a human tragedy, but let's just look at the economic impact for a moment. And that's the silver lining argument, and we reject both. We, there's, there was a tragedy. We don't reject both, but we, we agree there was a tragedy. We reject the idea that there's a silver lining in most of these cases. It's imaginable. There could be maybe in some, but most of the ex- actual examples don't strike us as having a silver lining. And the, the reason we're talking about government spending, well, government – Versus personal choices that people make. Well, government spending, the prices that government pays are not market prices. And in particular – so when you're trying to aggregate across all the goods that are being produced in, say, 1943 versus 1923 or 1933, it's very different because a lot of the goods being produced are being produced by the government or being produced by the private sector for government. And their true value is very hard to measure. In addition, in addition, you can't eat a tank. Uh, You you might want a tank to protect yourself from from an attack, but a tank is only produced for that purpose. It produces no independent enjoyment. And finally, the prices of the non-tanks, the other things in the economy during World War II are all under, uh, under price controls. Not all, but most things are under price controls. So all the ways that we usually aggregate value by multiplying, these, as you mentioned, to start with the spending that people make, the counting up the economic value of the transactions, and I should say more accurately the monetary value, all the ways that we do that during wartime get distorted. And so what we draw on in, our, in the lyric in this second – in the fight of the century is the work of Robert Higgs, who we interviewed uh, – who I interviewed on EconTalk uh, – a while back, and we'll put a link to that interview where we talked about this explicitly. But the idea is simple. The Keynesian multiplier wasn't um, – as Hayek sings in the song, there was no multiplier. Consumption just shrank as we use scarce resources for every new tank. Now, it's possible that there's enough scarce resources – enough surplus resources laying around. That you could get a tank as essentially a free lunch for the economy as a whole. The resources that, were, that go to make the tank weren't doing anything, and so now you get a tank and you get people working, and that's great. But if those people were doing something else that was productive, some of them, maybe a lot of them, if the iron and steel that goes into the tank could have been used for something else, then it's not free. It is an unemployed resource, and what you're really doing is just driving up the price and making it scarcer for other people. So it's essentially an empirical question. Did, was there some kind of Keynesian multiplier in World War II? And the answer is when Higgs looks at consumption… Outside of the military sector, he finds that people had access to less. We know they had access to less. That's why there was rationing. So that's why we say uh, – that's why Hayek says pretty perverse to call that prosperity. Ration meat, ration butter, a life of austerity. Yes, as Keynes says in the song, GDP was up. Yes, unemployment was close to zero. But Higgs points out correctly, we believe, that if you conscript everybody, you force everybody into a draft – it's easy to have full employment. The question is, what's what do you get to eat? And if if there's a lot of people in the army, you're going to get less to eat. And that's what was happened in World War II. It happened for the Americans. It happened for the British. They didn't have a prosperous time in England during the th- late 30s and 40s as they had to spend desperately more resources on the military. certainly wasn't a good time in Germany in the 40s as they spent more. I think I want to emphasize, and John, you can add anything you want, but I think it's really important. This does not disprove Keynesianism. Right? We're not claiming that World War II, which I believe Higgs shows definitively, led to a reduction in the economic standard of living outside of the military sector. For every, Everyday Americans had a harder time in 1941, 42, 43, 44, 45 than they had in healthy peacetime. And the reason is simple. A lot more resources, human and material, had to go into making tanks, bombs, and airplanes. That might have been a good idea. I think it was. But – that's not the point. The question is, was it good for the economy, for output, for production? It was for those things. It didn't stimulate through some multiplier the rest of the economy. and But that doesn't disprove that it, that, that, that has to be that, – that, that doesn't prove that Keynes is wrong because it's possible. Even a Keynes. let me say it differently. Even a Keynesian would, would admit that if, uh, if every worker was staffed in the army and fleet, you'd have full employment with nothing to eat as Hayek says. At some extreme – and that's the really our simplest point. If you devote all resources to digging ditches and filling them back in or fighting a war, you don't get prosperity. You get desperate poverty. Now, it's possible that there's some amount of government spending in between there. And we're skeptical of this, but it's possible that there was some smaller amount of government spending that could have just soaked up the scarce resources and not start to bite in to the other productivity that's going on in the economy. But that isn't what would happen in World War II. It, that isn't – so – our claim is that World War II is not evidence for Keynesianism. That's all. That's what we're rejecting, the standard myth that we think is a myth that World War II cured the
1: economy. Yeah, I think there's only a couple things I want to add to that, which I, all, all of which I agree with, uh, um, Ross, is that you know, one of the things we're leveraging is one of the, one of the sort of Austrian contributions to economics that, act- that actually has gotten widespread acceptance, and that's the notion of subjective value. Which is, goes back to Carl Menger. And it's this, it's this idea, you know, prior to, prior to the marginal revolution, there was this quandary. Why is it that diamonds cost more and are valued more highly than bread? You can't eat diamonds. Diamonds objectively seem just sort of silly and worthless. And yet, they cost dramatically more than bread. And it turns out, um, and this is just, this has been demonstrated just, you know, one of the few definitive things in economics. Uh, that, no, the, the economic value is measured through subjective decision-making. It's, it's, the, it's the, that intersection between what people desire in their mind and have the means to uh, to get. It's not desire, really. It's demand. Those two things are different. So I have to have the means to buy the thing that I want. Because I, I, I'd love to have a Lamborghini. I don't have the means, so I can't demand Lamborghinis. Um, and the supply. So if there's not a lot of supply and there's a lot of demand, then the price is high, aka diamonds. And uh, if there's a lot of supply relative to demand, the price is low. And I think the thing about when we talk about sort of this this quirk about war and price controls and, gov- and government government spending, you know, it's it's not that there's no value there. It's that we don't have an economic way of measuring it.
0: I have a good yardstick.
1: So it's not, you know, I was speaking to David Henderson, who's done a bunch of work on this stuff too, and he brought up an interesting point. He said, you know, a student of mine said, "Is this a reasonable argument to make that the, you know, the about the value problems because locks on our doors are measured in GDP, and they don't, they're not food, but we do need that security, and we measure that." And he's that's a very good point. I mean, the war. Very well. I mean, there's a lot of value that was that one can argue about that was created by fighting World War II. Um, I'm, I can't argue that. I don't know. I'm not in a position to do so. But we don't. As a, you know, I don't think. The, I don't think economics as a as a as a framework for understanding the world can get at that.
0: But that's a separate issue because that, that that's it's true that it's hard to measure that, right? And and I, but I would argue, and this is. We're going, to, we're going down a long, interesting, but I think tangential point here. But but I just should mention that we have a We have some measure of the value of security. The, the, the amount that we spend on locks tells us, and, and alarm systems and other things tells us how much people are willing to pay at least to, to have a little more certainty about their own security. That is different than than wartime spending. But the, in terms of of the yardstick. because of the way that that the market process produces locks. It produces alarm systems. The market process doesn't produce tanks. Those are done collectively through the political process, and that's fine. That just means it's harder to measure. That's not – but I I think that's a bit of a red herring. The point I want to focus on, it's it's not that important as to whether government spending on war is worth it or not, whether World War II was a good war, which most people believe. I do. That was a good war. Uh, that's not the issue. The issue is whether in the course of that good or bad war, if you think it was a bad war, did there was there a spillover essentially into private consumption and production because of this stimulating multiplier as government spending pumped through the economy? And our, that's the point I want to focus on, and that's the point that, that doesn't seem to have happened. And and you look at the aggregates and people say, Oh, but but unemployment was low. Yes it was. That's easy to do. It's easy to have unemployment be low if you, if you force people to work or if you pay them to not work.
1: Yeah, you, We could in- institute slavery today. Right. there's And, and lots that would cure unemployment technically.
0: Or, or offer 000, 000 a million-dollar-a-year jobs in the government and decide how many we wanted. That doesn't create prosperity for the economy as a whole. It might create prosperity for the people who get those jobs depending on how many we – we decide to to produce and create through the political process.
1: Can we use this as a jumping off point to my favorite geeky subject, which is Save Law Markets?
0: We can. And I, to do that though, I want to just say one thing. Um, I wanna I want let's close the the World War II discussion. Um, and I and I wanna and we'll turn to the in the video, uh, Keynes and Hayek each have two cornermen uh, helping them out in a in a normal boxing setting. One would be a trainer and one would be a cut man, a person who would help stop the bleeding in the case of um, of a punch that, that caused bleeding. Uh, our our idea was to put their trainer and cut man to be their intellectual helpers, and uh, we we had a lot of jokes planned. We couldn't pull them off. Where instead of you know taking care of them in between rounds with water and and towels and bandages, they would actually or stitches. What they would instead do is bring them articles to read and books to look at. But we we didn't pull that off. But the the idea was who would we put in their corners, and John, I, I'm going to. Well, let's do. We'll do Hayek first. Hayek has Mises in one corner, and obviously, you know, we did a podcast with Pete Bedke where he talked about Mises and his influence on Hayek. So that was an easy choice. But John said, "Well, let's put J.B. Say in the corner, and also." And I, I'm not a. I don't know much about Say. So why did you want to put Say in there, John?
1: So, um, as I've been doing my geeky reading and. This strange like serpentine <laughs> serpentine uh, path that I teach myself, where i uh, I come across certain things that I dig deeply in and totally disregard other things. You know one of the one of the things I noticed about the arguments made that by Keynes and uh, the way it's discussed is that he had he was claimed to have overthrown. This important idea of the quote classical economists which was Say's Law of Markets and um, what Say's Law of Markets in its cartoon version says which is immediately sounds like a bizarre statement and it's not really the right statement is supply creates its own demand the average if anybody knows if, if the average person well maybe not the average person most people that know what Say's Law of Markets is, in some form, say, oh, well, that supply creates its own demand. That's like supply-side economics or something. But as I read through this material, what I found, and I found it to be a very, very interesting concept, is that it's not that. not supply creates its own demand. I can't go in my backyard and make a mud pie, and suddenly there'll be someone there to buy it. It's that production is is the means by which... We empower ourselves to demand other things, which a simple way to think about that is if I want to buy a pizza, I have to, I have to work and sell my good and earn the money to buy the pizza. And and I can make I... myself a pizza, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about exchange and economic activity. If I
0: live in a barter economy, I have to find something the pizza person, pizza maker wants. But fortunately, in a monetary economy, I don't have to do that. I just have to produce enough value for someone, someone – that is equal to the value of the pizza, and then I can have one.
1: That's right, and so what we what, what that insight points to is where where purchasing power ultimately is derived. It is ultimately derived from the production of valuable things. It is not derived from demand because demand can't come first. If if you and I are dropped on a desert island and we have nothing, we can't demand anything. We can't trade.
0: We, we can die. to as you go said- off
1: into the woods and. and uh, And knock down some coconuts, and you have to go fish. And now we have produced, and we can trade from there.
0: As you point out, I might desire a hammock or a hut or a a air conditioner, but uh, that's meaningless in that setting.
1: And so, and and so, the interesting thing about so that so that's so. Save law of markets is this really? It's this. It's this very subtle idea, and you know what? We should definitely link to some of the. There's some relatively short pieces about it, but. I found very helpful that really illustrated this for me that you know you do have to that's where you, that's where wealth comes from. You have to produce wealth. and then that that Austrian value proposition about well, how do you value wealth is that it's that you value it based on what people want. you know so if, I, if I go into a, in the backyard and produce a mud pie, nobody wants it. it has no value. In the first fear of the boom and bust, we said it's devalued capital that makes up the slack. So these uh, these vacant homes in Nevada, they, they are still physically there. They're part of the quote capital stock, but if nobody wants it, its value might be zero. And so when Austrians talk about the destruction or consumption of capital, they're talking about the devaluation of these things. That that's where we. That's that's the realm in which sort of we're talking about these things.
0: And in the in the current in the fight of the century, the current video, the key line is jobs aren't. An- Jobs are a means, not an end. Or they're not ends in themselves. What is it, people?
1: People work to live better, to put, to food, put food on the, on the shelf. The real growth means production of what people demand. And then here comes what I'm sure is a sticking point for some Canadians. That's entrepreneurship, not your central plan. We can get to that later.
0: Yeah, but but the gist of it is that that's. John's very excited that, that that first survived our mutual scrutiny because that says law, or says insights. Uh, uh, contra Keynes, and um, it's a bit cryptic but that's what we're trying to say there and uh, yeah and I, I
1: think to... it is the, the broadest i think the bet, the broadest way to think about it is you know the keynesian view focuses on nominal spending and um, in a monetary economy that that root source of where the where the purchasing power comes from does get complicated and so there was a debate the most interesting thing about this, and it really informs the title, it could have been called the fight, fight, fight of all centuries, because the debate between Thomas Malthus and and J.B. Say, it, which played out a hundred years prior to Keynes and Hayek, was essentially just Keynes and Hayek. So, Say.
0: Yeah, let's turn to that because I think Malthus, um, we've got Malthus in Keynes's corner, which. For most people, including myself, John knows more economic history in areas that in some areas than I do. I, I didn't understand this or know why you wanted to put Malthus in Keynes' corner. Why did? Why was that?
1: Well, I can I have to credit Brad DeLong because he's written he's written over the past two years quite a bit about this debate and about how um, and you know he was writing at it from a from a standpoint trying to discredit Say's law, but still he. he, he Brought up a lot of great great information about this debate, and the debate was basically that Malthus posited that you could have a problem of underconsumption, which is, and the inverse of underconsumption that would be that there would be a general glut of goods. There could be too little consumption and too much production, uh, and you would have this you would have goods piling up on the shelves, and thus you'd get a recession because of. And again, the reason for this seems to just not, you know, the animal spirits filled in the reason for canes. But I mean, that's just insert X reason.
0: And the classical view is that well, wait a minute, we've got this excess supply that people don't value. The price starts to fall. That makes them more attractive than they were before. So that's people who weren't interested maybe start buying them. Or if people make mistakes, they build mud pies and try to sell them. You know, they'll go out of business and. They'll try to use their talents doing something else. It may take them a while. That's the entrepreneurship part.
1: Yeah, and and, and in that entrepreneurial um, vein, the the argument that Say made in return was that the inability of of producers to sell their goods is a signal of a a production failure or you could say a coordination failure. So it turns out for some reason that producers went about making goods – that people didn't want as much as those producers anticipated.
0: Yep, people make mistakes. In our, in our
1: recent case, uh, too many houses got built relative to what people genuinely wanted and um, and could demand with funds. And uh, and so now the and so that round was essentially decisively won within sort of the intellectual whatever the intellectual um, I don't know what you call it the. The consensus, I guess.
0: Yeah, the mainstream.
1: I say. And so a hundred years has have, have go have, have gone by when, when Hayek, I mean, a um, hundred years has gone by when Keynes essentially reasserts the exact same argument this under consumptionist argument that it's total demand or effective demand that needs to be maintained and that you can have a shortfall of effective demand. And
0: and the paradox of thrift comes in here. The people yeah, so, mistakenly you know, I think save we, and don't buy enough stuff, and suddenly the economy is in the doldrums.
1: And you know, fear the boom and bust focuses on this a lot more than fight of the century. But you know, my the way I think about the general glut, which uh, and that's true. You know, you see slack in some sectors as a general glut is, but some sectors are healthy only some in a rut.
0: That's Hayek's line.
1: fight of the century so the spending's not free that's the heart of the matter too much is wasted as cronies get fatter so that's a political comment commentary but the heart of that gets to this notion of aggregation and what does general glut mean um my little pithy way of saying it is i've never been to the general goods store i've never been able to buy or bid on aggregate supply there's no market process there's no trucking and bartering for aggregate supply because aggregate supply is not a thing yeah, it's it's a, just an ex post summary of the goods. It's,
0: abs- it's an abstract concept that purports to help thinking. Perhaps it does, but we think it.
1: Deceives. So you know, and, and so my understanding here of these, and this is the point that Brad DeLong log makes, is that well, you know, say we're talking about this this world where um, prices adjust and things move around, but what happens if they're sticky rather than um, people buying, you know, so people buy less houses, they buy more of something else. That, that, that demand for something else causes resources to allocate. But what if they don't? What if they're scared and they just hoard money? And again, you know, it, the thing that is so funny about all of these things for, to me is how old all of these arguments turn out to be. You know, as I, as I read more and try to fill in my understanding, I've realized, well, I realize, well, apparently David Hume, going back yet another hundred years, was uh, was was aware of the the idea that hoarding physical cash was no different than destroying it in the short term and that there could be effects on the, the economy by hoarding cash.
0: But John let me let me bring us let me bring us to the to the current economic situation cuz these are abstract ideas and l- let me try to g- apply them to the recent stimulus spending. So the Keynesian argument and again I I, I want to be fair to Keynes and his proponents. So I'm just going to quote Joe Stiglitz, who Nobel laureate, proud admitter in congressional testimony that digging ditches and filling them back in will stimulate the economy. There were, you know, there's a joke. Some people say it's a joke. Keynes didn't really mean that. Modern Keynesians certainly mean it, and they argue that it doesn't matter what you spend on because there's a glut. There's too much. There's too much stuff. There's under demand. Aggregate demand's not big enough, and all we have to do is is spend enough. And when when confronted with the fact that the economy is still struggling, they say, well, we just should have spent more as Keynes sings in the song early on. It it would be even better. Um, Our counter is, is that, yes, there are sectors of the economy where there's scarce resources. And the example I use, I'll stick with your Nevada example. There's a lot of unemployed carpenters and electricians in Nevada because they built a bunch of houses. There was a huge increase in house building whether it was because of animal spirits or because of bad government policy. doesn't matter for this point of the discussion. There was a huge increase in house building, and a lot of people were drawn into those sectors. And as a result, um, when suddenly there was no more demand for new houses, those folks are now faced with a decision we've talked about on the program before with, with Arnold Kling in a recent discussion. They have to decide. Should they go back to something else? What should, they, or should they wait till the housing market recovers? There's a lot of unemployed electricians and carpenters. So to help that, quote, unemployment rate, which is very sector-specific and very geographic-specific, the US government decides to spend an extra $800 billion and in, in hopes of helping put some of those carpenters and electricians back to work. Well, where did where, where that, where that money go, the $800 billion? About a third of it went to a tax rebate, didn't change incentives. That was spread out across the whole economy. Wasn't focused in Nevada or Florida or Arizona or California, where a lot of those carpenters, electricians, and others are unemployed. It helped maybe some of them, but it was a very untargeted set of spending. About a third of it went to help uh, state budgets that were in trouble. And so school teachers and police and firefighters were either kept on the uh, payroll or not unemployed as a result. That certainly didn't do much to help carpenters and electricians. And the third of the – the last third of the 800 or so billion – we started seven-something billion now. They say it's about 820. Uh, The the last third of the 820 billion went to a a bunch of stuff, a little bit of road building, very little uh, as John Taylor has pointed out. Uh, But a little bit went to uh, – the bulk of it went to what what I consider politically powerful folks. Those are the cronies who got fatter and those cronies include my industry education. A lot of universities got increased research budgets for medical stuff and other issues, and that's nice stuff. That's fine. It could be good. It could be money well spent. It could be money that we'll, as taxpayers, be glad was spent. But let's not pretend it helped a lot of carpenters and electricians in Nevada or Arizona or Florida or California. It probably didn't. And Maybe some of that money went to build a new research building. But a lot of it went to increase the demand, not for scarce resources, not for oversupplied unemployed resources, but for very scarce resources, PhDs and MDs, where the unemployment rate is close to zero. And what that does is it just pushes up the price and wages of those folks, which is great for us, but let's not pretend that that is going to make the economy as a whole better off or healthy. It doesn't. So that is what. Hayek's singing about in the, in that line. You, you see, Say it again, John. You don't have it off the tip, the tip of my time. The oh, general um, glut. What is it? no
1: growth means production no, the, of people demand. Or is no, before reward, that.
0: Before um, that. You see.
1: Oh, yeah. You see slack in some sectors as a general glut, but some sectors are healthy, only some in a rut. Well,
0: only some are in a rut. That's
1: so the, the carpenter's. It's not free. That's the heart of the matter. Too much is wasted as cronies get right. matter.
0: So it's not all wasted. It's not It's not just a payoff to, to politically powerful people, but it, it's it's – Curing effect; its its uh, the health impact, impact on the healthy economy is is extraordinarily muted because it's not targeted to the sectors uh, that are that are struggling. And even if it were, it would be short lived. I mean, th- that's not the way to solve it either. It's easy to put carpenters and electricians on make work and pretend that they're reproduct they're productive again. Bad phrase: reproductive. That they're productive again. Um,
1: but what- well, this if if I can t- do one one more little. Piece about this because I think one of the biggest criticisms that some careful Keynesians might read into our song is when Hayek essentially says that not your central plan. You know, Keynes was not a central planner in the sense that he believed in five-year Soviet yeah. central plans of the entire economy. That's not the point we're trying to make, and you know, we are. We, there is a limit in, in the brevity of a rap song, but the point. Um, the point in that uh, is that there is a there is a, a an argument that I think is pretty powerful about how does how do organizations and people go about discovering what to produce and um, you know when we talk about well some of this stuff can be you know you, you mentioned well some of the spending could be productive and some of it couldn't be and that has to raise the question by what process does yeah. government or anyone determine how to go about spending and investing and, and uh, using resources. And I don't see why recession suddenly makes that easier for the government. Because the way, my, my, my vantage point on this, and people are more than, well, you know, I'm more than happy to hear why I'm wrong, is that if the government is capable of determining how to spend that money, well then, socialist calculation should work. The government should be able to do a lot more than just that particular project. They they've clearly got some mechanism of determining what's valuable to invest in that doesn't involve the market prices of the, the market process of trucking and bartering and individuals and the emergence of prices out of that. And circuit- they, they can say, "Oh, I think we need to produce more electric vehicles because of something other than the market price, because the market price is telling me we shouldn't." people don't want to buy them. Um, And so I'm going to ignore that. And I'm going to use government entrepreneurship to produce more electric vehicles. And I don't see why recession, which makes life harder for every other entrepreneur, should make the calculation process easier for government. It's just, uh, I don't get it. I don't get that part. And I do think, you know, there's a stronger case for that for that line about central planning, which is that in the general theory, Keynes does allude to, in, in the later chapters, that the real social reform shouldn't be counter-cyclical spending, but should be, quote, the socialization of investment. And I don't know if this was meant to mean that the government should essentially take over the stock market or take over banking in totality and basically allocate capital, but that... It's pretty close to central planning, as far as I could see. Um, so that—that's my defense of that line, which I know
0: some people have criticized. It, but some I think, people have okay.
1: criticized, and you know, maybe they're maybe maybe rightly, but there is a, there's a thought process there. It's not simply a slam on Keynes that he's a socialist.
0: That's a great point. Um, right, we're, we're we're making a subtle point there, but with a slightly blunt instrument, perhaps. But it's. Um
1: Somebody has to plan where the money gets spent for that that stimulus. That, if that's not central planning, I'm not sure what what is central planning.
0: Yeah, but again, they're not arguing to take over the whole economy no. just to mere eight, just 800 billion, you know, or a quarter actually. Right now, government is about a quarter of GDP. It's not socialism, but it's central planning of some kind, obviously. Um, just yeah. not the full thing. Uh, we're we're short on time, which is. Good and bad. It's good, and I think we've had an interesting conversation about some of the ideas in the in the video. And it's nice to to let Sean to let you talk about some of the intellectual issues that bro- that you brought to the song and that uh, you brought to me. Issues that I wasn't as aware of, and I've learned a lot from those. It's been a fascinating experience. And we wrote the song. We had a version of the song, uh, quote done, and maybe four months ago, and John said, you know, this just isn't – we're missing this point here. And actually, I'm sure John will remember. I said, you know, John, I'm a little tired of Say's Law. <laughs> a little tired of – you know, it's just not a mainstream – the average person isn't as interested in it as you are. But I think I was wrong. Uh, I think it's true that the average person isn't really interested in reading Jean-Baptiste Say. But I think this fundamental idea of a discovery process is very Hayekian. I think it's really cool that say is in Hayek's corner, and that certainly the what you've just been talking about about the difficulties and challenges of finding out what people value and want, and how do we uh, get out of a of a mess that we're in? Again, regardless of what the causes of it are, why you'd think government would know where what carpenters should be in a new world is, uh, I think, an extremely important point. I'm really glad that you pushed us to to get those ideas into the into the lyrics.
1: Thanks, Ross. Yeah. And, and just like one last piece on it is that there isn't. You know, I do not personally reject that there is short-run monetary effects, and that you know there is there are there's 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 lots of space in this discussion for some of the types of arguments that I've read and and, and uh, from Keynesians, and that you know it, it's this is this piece and our whole enterprise to me is about opening up the dialogue and, and giving. Hayek a seat at the table that he used to have and um, and and going from there it's not yes we're with Hayek yes but you know but we're we're but we're also very skeptical about about this whole enterprise as Hayek was Which whole enterprise? The enterprise of macroeconomics.
0: Yeah. I think and I, let's close on that. I mean, unfortunately the, so the bad, the good news is I hope you enjoyed the conversation out there about the role of say in Hayekian Uh, thought and how we put it into the video. We did not get into what I also wanted to talk about, which – this is also very typical of our conversation, Sean. We we get into some digression and and we don't get – make progress on exactly what we wanted to, but we learn a lot along the way. Um, I really wanted to get into the nuts and bolts of filmmaking, which John, of course, is superb at. But uh, we're going to put that for another podcast down the road perhaps. I want to focus – I want to come full circle I want to close by, by talking about this. We, we talk, you called it the enterprise, macroeconomics generally, and the, the lyric is um, – go ahead, John.
1: Yeah, so we, call, Hayek's final blow is not a, is not a takedown of Keynes and a celebration of, of Austrian business cycle theory. Rather, it's a, more, a deeper point and one that I think Hayek arrived at later in his life – which is about the nature of, of, of uh, economics and of social science and what we can know. And so Hayek lines up for the fi- his final conclusive moment, and he says, uh, the lesson I've learned is how little we know. The world is complex, not some circular flow. The economy is not a class you can master in college. To think otherwise is the pretense of knowledge.
0: And that's a reference to Hayek's 1974 Nobel Prize Prize lecture where he very eloquently uh, admits that we do not fully understand the economy and we probably never will. It's not just a question of writing – doing some more statistical analysis and thinking about it a little more deeply. In fact, it's inevitably some kind of essence of it is hidden from us that the knowledge that we need to manipulate that system is never going to be uh, sufficient and I think – it's his agnosticism about macroeconomics, not a particular flavor that is what I've learned that, that, that's most powerful from that – from Hayek. And um, it's um,
1: – I mean just to speak a little to the visual. When he says not some circular flow, we put up an old footage of pistons. Yeah. Uh, again, a <laughs> reference to the automobile –
0: the engine, rowing, where, where the engine the engine is to, meta- you know, it's just like an
1: engine that's stalled and gone dark we're we're tapping into a very very broadly referenced analogy where the economy's a car that got dug into a ditch or the car is stalled we need to juice the car spark the car the economy's not a car we aren't gears in the engine of a car it's just a it is not you know it, it is a, it is it is an organism it is a it's it's it's, it's us all together but it's also it's also an it's an ecosystem like a rainforest. You can't possibly imagine. None of us can imagine even what we would need to know to be able to, to hold in our heads this thing and call it a system.
0: So, yeah. to be fair, the, you know the Keynesians when they say the engines, you know the the cars, the economy is like a car that needs a spark. That's just a metaphor. They understand it's not the economy is not a car. What we're saying is it's it's not a good metaphor. We understand it's just a metaphor that the actual economy is very complex we think it's the wrong metaphor the and right well, metaphor to,
1: I, to be a little stronger critic when you calculate a multiplier with decimal points it suggests that your treatment of the economy like a is, is maybe a little more car like than than um than simply a, a, a purely sort of a pure metaphor.
0: Oh yeah, no, no, no. It's it's but it's an engineering it's an engineering metaphor, which is engineering systems are are susceptible to analysis and and decimal points and you know, our our response to that is that it's the bad metaphor. Those decimal points are deceiving you about your ability to to, to master and understand the system. And a better metaphor is one that's more organic, more complex, more emergent, and um, that's what we think is the right way to think about that enterprise. And
1: I also think that that, um, that criticism cuts both ways because on, the, on the, the more, I guess, the more the Austrian, or the Austrian side and the Austrian-slash-monetarist side, I suppose, there can be this, this very sort of sealed-like approach to monetary impacts you know we have not had a hyperinflation we don't really have a full understanding and of the ways in which money uh, you know impacts yeah, the economy sure. for sure and you know the, the 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 equation of exchange mv equals pq is not is not some closed hydraulic system any more than um, y equals c plus i plus g yeah fair there's enough. a lot of complexity under the surface and
0: John, we're, we're really out of time, but I, wa- I want to I close with something. I want to take us back to our earlier conversation and try to bring in some of these later insights, and then we're going to have to stop. But the, whenever we talk – whenever I talk to people about World War II and whether it was help good for the economy or not, uh, even people who are sympathetic to that idea that, that it didn't help, that it wasn't good for the economy. They always ask me the same thing. They say, well, then what did end the Great Depression? As if there had to be a switch or a lever or a, some kind of the steering, you know, because it wasn't that steering wheel turn. But maybe it was what was the what was the steering wheel turn? Where was the the uh, carburetor set to that that allowed the engine to get healthy again? And I, I really think that the conversation we've been having about Say's Law, the discovery process, the sources of value, the sources of real prosperity. The search, the entrepreneurial aspects of, of a modern economy, the complexity of it, the organic nature of it, it, it really speaks to this issue. And I just didn't want to leave it untouched, which is when, I, when people ask me, well, what did end the Great Depression? I always say the passage of time and returning to an up, a place where people could, as we say in the song, people had a chance to discover the most valuable ways to serve one another. The only way we get prosperity is by producing things that other people care about. We don't know what those things are. They can't be predetermined in advance. They're not found in a cookbook or a recipe or a manual. And the claim of Robert Higgs and those of us who are sympathetic to his viewpoint and to uh, skeptical of the Keynesian argument is that the frenetic fiddling of the 30s created the uncertainty. that made it hard for people to make the plans and the investments and took away the confidence they might have in the future that would allow the economy to get healthy again. Once the war was over and it was clear that price controls were done and that people were back to able to make those choices, they jumped in with two feet and the world got healthy again. I'm not suggesting that capitalism is always a self-sustaining healthy system. Obviously, it can have problems independent of bad public policy. But the idea that you have to have a a mechanism or a lever as to why people were able to then get back to work and do things for each other, which is what a modern, decentralized economy built on the division of labor is all about. Well, I, One part of that answer is they were free to do so, and they did. So if you want to comment on that, I think then we'll end.
1: Well, yeah, I, th- I mean I think what I find interesting is that when we get into I, – I just reject the notion that – there's some kind of magical, fundamentally different problem going on during, you know, during the process after after the trough. You know, it's the same problem. We're all trying to figure out how to make our lives better, how to make other people's lives better. Maybe not intentionally. Maybe it's just a matter of how do I sell my product at a okay. profit so I can do well. That's but what the invisible that, hand says. Other people mu- must, must enjoy it. That's the invisible hand. And, um... You know, and there's, there's all kinds of problems there. I think, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's the same question as why do some nations seem to have consistently different rates of growth? We don't know. It's, there's so many things. There's the, social, there's the culture. I think you and I both agree, actually, that of all the sort of very broad insights or commentaries from Keynes, the role of animal spirits is probably the most important. I mean, no question mood
0: psychology
1: and psychology i mean if if if, if, economics is i think certainly not a physical science but if it's anything it's probably closest in in my opinion to a, a kind of sociology and um... you know we're talking about what people believe in their minds about value if that's not a sociological or psychological thing i mean i don't know what is and hayek was you know the attack on hayek which seems to mainly come from people that aren't familiar with him or the Austrians. That, well, you look at the world as perfectly rational beings. I mean, the Austrians are anything but that. I don't.
0: Right, it's not or the people way people
1: they... are purposeful, but they're not perfectly rational. I have no idea what that means.
0: Well, that's a Chicago School influence on free market thinking. That's a different. That's a different strand. Sure. So yeah, I'm, uh, it's I'm not. not Aust- Aust- it's definitely not Austrian.
1: Yeah, and I'm, it's certainly not. And I'm not familiar with it. But I guess the point. I guess I'm, I'm rambling a little bit. But the point is, absolutely. Mood matters. You know, I'm trying to get a company up and running and it, it makes a big difference on a personal level and a community level, whether people feel um, willing to take risks, whether they feel positive about the future. And, and I mean, and that gets translated into markets and into, I mean, markets aren't just us. All it, the, the term market is just, it's the best thing is to go to the marketplace, literally not the stock market, but, you know, go to a place where you interact with people, where you buy things and you have conversations. My local baker. You know, that's a, that's, there's a social connection that happens there. It's not just um, some kind of clinical commerce. And I met my wife, Lisa, who was a co-producer on the project. I met her at work. You know, pr- uh, the, the commercial process is, is a human process. It's not a, not a car. It's not a machine. Not a clinical sort of marshalian curves in the sky. It's
0: not X's and Y's.
1: And um, and that's I think the way you, I, I know we've talked a lot about this. You, this is this, this this stuff is probably some of the most Robertsian hmm. impact you've had on me is to think about the economy in this organic way, and it's just a it just changes the way you think about the problem. I want to address one more thing before we wrap up, which is. Keynes, the cronies, and too big to fail. Uh, Keynes, I don't think would have argued necessarily for bailing out banks or cronyism. However, his system, his top-down system that concentrates power in such a way—I uh, mean, well, he put it—he put it best. This is an infamous, infamous quote. So, excuse it, but. In in his German edition of The General Theory, he noted in the preface that the theory of production put forward was more easily adapted to a totalitarian state than an economy with a high degree of laissez-faire. He was not advocating totalitarianism, but he was noticing and pointing out that it sure does make it easier to control the overall level of spending and production if you have a totalitarian state. And there is a natural bias if you provide the tools for planners to control that by golly they'll take a hold of that wheel and when it, when you need to maintain aggregate spending in the face of a bunch of insolvent banks, I'm not sure how else you're going to do it besides bail them out so there is a it's you know our our our, our depiction of Keynes and and his interaction with the bankers and and the the quote cronies is not a suggestion that he was in cahoots with them. And I think visually, directorially, that moment at the end where he looks to Hayek, you know, he comes into that room with Hayek as friends and they have their moment at the end as friends. And that's as it was.
0: Yeah. They and were that's friends.
1: what this was about. And the other things and the people that rushed to him in support of him is our very much editorialized depiction of what we believe follows from from the tools that he provides. People can dis- people can say that we're wrong and that we're slamming him, and I understand that. But it's, we are not suggesting that he is an active crony pulling the strings behind the scenes. That's yeah, not. Yeah, no.
0: and I, and and on the too big to fail issue and the bailouts of banks, uh, we brought in that issue into the song because. So many people have seen the current crisis as an indictment of Hayek's worldview, so it would be perfectly natural, as many Keynesians have, to say, well, the reason we're in this mess is that we trusted the marketplace. And that's why we have that little digression in the middle towards the end of the song, down the, the middle,
1: Yeah, about, I mean, I, uh, about
0: why Keynes could interpret this as a failure of regulation and how Hayek would respond in saying, well, we've been bailing out losers for a while. When you bail out the losers, there's no end to the cost. And capitalism is a system of profit and loss. And so we just wanted to get that in there because we thought it was important because this is also part of this. It's the same debate, folks.
1: It it's is, and debate. I think that the record is pretty clear. If you look at the t- today's today's most um, effusive advocates of Keynesian, Keynesian economics, their review of what should have been done to, with Lehman Brothers is not – that it was good to let them fail and we should have let the other ones go down too pretty categorically bail them
0: all save
1: them all they should have bailed out Lehman
0: that was the only mistake according to those folks
1: so I you know that's we're not we're not crazy folks
0: (laughs) (laughs) well speak for yourself John
1: (laughs) well maybe Um, I'm a little crazy it's
0: okay (laughs) (laughs) my guest today has been John Popola John thank you for being part of Econ Talk
1: it was very exciting Russ
2: Same Economist Same beliefs, new microphones, new mustaches. Here we are, peace out, great recession, thanks to me, as you see, we're not in a depression. Recovery, destiny, if you follow my lesson, Lord Canes, here I come, line
3: up for the procession. We brought out the shovels and we're still in a ditch and still digging. Don't you think it's time for a switch from that hair of the dog? Friend, the party is over. The long run is here. It's time to get sober. Are you kidding? My cure works perfectly fine. Have a look,
2: the Great Recession ended back in 09. I deserve credit. Things would have been worse. All the
3: estimates proven. Up quote chapter and verse. Econometricians, they're ever so biased. Are they doing real science or confirming their bias? Their Keynesian models are tidy and neat, but that top-down approach is a fatal conceit. Oh. Which situation we
4: choose? What bottom, up, Continues. Gained in Hyatt's second round. It's time to win. Walk from the top or from the crowd. Let's listen to the great saints. Gained in Hyatt's throwing down. We could have
2: done we only spent more. Too bad that only happens when there's a world war. You can carve all you want about stats and regression. Do you deny World War II cut short the depression? Wow,
3: one data point and you're jumping for joy. The last time I checked, wars only destroy. There was no multiplier. Consumption just shrank as we used scarce resources for every new tank. Pretty perverse to call that prosperity. Ration meat, ration butter, a life of austerity. When that war spending ended, your friends cried disaster. Yet the economy thrived and grew faster. faster.
2: You too only see what you want to see The spending on war clearly goes GDP Unemployment was over, almost down to zero That's why I'm
3: the master, that's why I'm the hero Creating employment's a straightforward craft When the nation's at war and there's a trap If every worker was staffed in the army and fleet We'd have full employment and nothing to eat Nothing to eat, nothing to eat Which way should we
4: choose? More bottom up, more top The fight continues Gazing high at second round It's time to win More from the top, more from the crowd
3: Let's listen to the great city high at going down Jobs are a means, not the ends in themselves People work to live better, to put food on the shelves Real growth means production of what people demand That's entrepreneurship, not your central plan
2: My solution is simple and easy to handle. It's spending that matters. Why is that such a scandal? Money sloshes through the pipes and the sluices. Revitalizing the economy's juices. It's just like an engine that stalled and gone dark. To bring it to life, we need a quick spark. Spending's the lifeblood that gets the flow going. Where it goes,
3: You see slack in some sectors as a general glut But some sectors are healthy, only some in a rut So spending's not free, that's the heart of the matter Too much is wasted as cronies get fatter The economy's not a car, there's no engine to stall No expert can fix it, there's no it at all The economy's us, we don't need a mechanic Put away the wrenches, the economy's organic Which way should we
2: help those unemployed. This is the question you seem to avoid. When we're in a mess
3: would you have us just wait doing nothing until markets equilibrate? I don't want to do nothing. There's plenty to do. The question I ponder is who plans for whom? Do I plan for myself or leave it to you? I want plans by the many, not by the few. Let's not repeat what created our troubles. I want real growth, not a series of bubbles. Stop bailing out losers. Let us prices work. If we don't try to steer them, they won't go berserk. Come on, are you kidding? Don't Wall Street gyrations challenge a worldview of
2: self? Regulation? Even you must admit that the lesson we've learned is more oversights needed or else we'll get burned.
3: Oversight? The government's long been in bed with those Wall Street execs and the firms that they've led. Capitalism's about profit and loss. You bail at the losers, there's no end to the cost. The lesson I've learned is how little we know. The world is complex, not some circular flow. The economy's not a classic and master in college. To think otherwise is the pretense of knowledge. Which way should we?
4: More bottom my more touchdown The fight continues Cajun Hyatt, second round It's time to win War from the tap, war from the ground. Let's
2: listen to
4: the big say Cajun Hyatt, throwing down You get on your
2: high horse and you're off to the races I look at the world on a case-by-case basis When people are suffering, I roll up my sleeves And do what I can to kill disease. The future's uncertain, our outlooks are frail. That's why free markets are so prone to fail. In a volatile world, we need more discretion, so state intervention can counter-depression.
3: People aren't chessmen, you move on a board at your whim, their dreams and desires ignored. With political incentives, discretion's a joke. Those dials are twisting, just mirrors and smoke. We need stable rules and real market prices, so prosperity emerges and cuts short the crisis. Give us a chance, so we can discover the most valuable ways to serve one another.
4: Yeah. Which way should we choose? What bottom up or more? Turn down. The fight continues. Canting high at second round. It's time to win it. from the top or from the ground. Let's listen to the bridge. Canting high it's going down. Which way should we choose? Most bottom up or more top down? The fight continues. Kings and Hayek second round. It's time to win. More from the top or from the ground. Let's listen to the great saints. Kings and Hayek down. Throwing down.